but more importantly, it is because when Jesus was asked what was the greatest commandment or what was the number one commandment, he said it was this. He said that the greatest commandment or the number one was to basically love God with all you got. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Now that's pretty explicit language. It's not ambiguous. Jesus oftentimes, when he was asked a question, he would speak in a parable or he would say, let him that has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples would be confused. And what did you mean by that? Not in this instance. This was extremely clear, extremely explicit. Hey, here's what I want. Here's what's most important. Love God with all that you have. Here is how I have begun to think of this or kind of categorize this particular command and how I'm phrasing it this morning is that God's vision for his church is that it would be filled with people who are close and clean worshipers. Meaning that God wants people who worship him from the heart, who love him, and because they love him, they keep his commandments and in turn kill off sin in their lives. Now as I begin to categorize, here's what God asked for in the New Testament, I counted more than a hundred times where this was the command. This is over and over. There's, there's nothing that even holds a candle to this in terms of frequency of God asking for this in the New Testament. So I can't take you to all of those instances. We can't do a survey of those hundred something times where this is asked for in the New Testament. But I do want to take you to one passage where I think that this is explained and explained well. And it could be kind of a window into what this command is all about. So turn to Colossians chapter number three this morning. We're going to read the first 11 verses. This is Colossians chapter number 3, verses 1 through 11. As you turn there, I'll give you a little bit of prep. Uh, Colossians is four chapters long, so this is the midway point of the book. The first two chapters of Colossians are deeply theological. They're all about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for us, how he's redeemed us, how we shouldn't be moved away from him, how the real treasures in Jesus. Don't get sidetracked with other stuff. Just stay on Jesus. It's that over and over again, how our identity is with Jesus. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. So we, we too should die to sin. We are going to rise with him one day. It's all about that. And then it gets to the halfway point, and it, and it starts, this is kind of the shift from theological to practical, and Paul writes these words, if ye then be risen with Christ, so talking about what he just said for two chapters, look, if that's the case, if your identity is with Jesus, then seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. Oh, these are big words. I'll explain them later. Covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man, which is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, that's a lot, okay? That's a lot, and that's really rich. I could spend a long time talking about those verses. We actually preached through Colossians on a Sunday night sermon series 
uh, years ago, I preached through this, and I think it took me three or four weeks, like three or four almost hours to cover these 11 verses. So there's a lot here that we could talk about. I'm not going to be able to explain every nook and cranny of it, but I do want to give you the two really big concepts that are in this portion of Scripture. The first big concept that we need to unpack is this idea of loving Jesus, being devoted to Jesus, have your life being centered around Jesus. Now, notice all the different ways Paul phrases this. In verse number one, he says it like this. He says, if you're risen with Christ, if your identity is with him, then seek those things which are above. That's where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So what he's saying is if that's true, and it is, that you're wrapped up with Jesus, then I want you to seek the things that are above. That's where Jesus is. If that's true, make your ambitions, what you're seeking, what you're desiring, what you're pursuing, make that about where Jesus is. So what it's saying simply is that Jesus should capture our ambitions. Jesus should capture what motivates us. We should seek him. Like the needle of a compass seeks the North Pole, like a sunflower seeks the sun, a Christian should want to seek Jesus. Jesus put it this way, that we should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is saying very simply that the conscious preoccupation of a believer should be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means when it says seek the things that are above. Your preoccupation is on Jesus. You you should center your life on Jesus. Then verse number two, not just seek these things, but set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So not just your ambitions, not just what you seek, but I want your affections as well. Now, if you are married, have been married, are engaged, have been engaged, then you get this. You know what it's like to set both your affections and your ambitions on someone. If you have convinced someone to marry you, and guys, I think that it's a fitting term for us, that we convinced her, you know, to, to marry us. There's, there's, uh, there's always at least a smidge of like deception or putting your best foot forward or whatever it is, but, but you, you decided, you know what, man, I like her, I love her, I want to be uh, with her, I want to spend time with her, and, and so much so that I want to pursue her, I want to ask her to marry me, I want to spend my life with her. What's happening in those moments? You are putting your ambition, you are putting your affection both mingled together on one particular person. And you're saying, look, I'm, I'm a man on a mission. My, my mind is preoccupied with her. I'm infatuated with her. I don't want to marry marriage. I want to marry her. Now, maybe there's someone in the room and you grew up in, in, you know, the Orient or in India and you had an arranged marriage, but probably not in this room. Probably most of you can understand what, what I'm talking about, that you were seeking her, that your affection was on her. This is saying that should be Jesus. He's, he's where your ambition and your affection should be. Verse number three says it this way. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. Now, there's a lot there, but this is actually an echo of what Paul had said in chapter number two, speaking of our identity being wrapped up with Jesus. And when he says that your life is hid with Christ, what he's saying is that, that you're wrapped up together. That actually when, when, when God sees you, he sees Jesus in, in terms of his righteousness and you're actually intertwined with each other. Verse number four, he says when Christ who is our life, shall appear. Not just enough to say that Jesus is going to come back one day, but this parenthetical that he is our life. Not just a part of our life, not just a a piece of our life, not just the one who gives us life, but he is our life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We know this. He points to life, yes, but he is our life. He's supposed to be that way. 
that he's, he's my life. You, you want to get to know him. And you can get to know Jesus better, but you're never going to know anything better than Jesus. To make him your life, verses 5 and 6, verses 8 and 9 begin to talk about don't do these things sexually. Don't do these things relationally. I'll get back to those in a moment. But verse 7 says, hey, th- that stuff that you're not supposed to do, uh, you, you used to walk in that, in which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. They used to be you, and you used to be, no- be numbered among the children of disobedience, but when you met Jesus, everything changed, and everything changed for the better. Verse number 10, so you've put on the new man, and this new man is renewed in the knowledge after the image of him that created him. So what it's saying is you've joined Team Jesus, and you've put on that uniform. You put off the earthly, you put on the heavenly, you, you put off your past and you look at what he has for your eternal future. You live as a citizen of heaven now and he says that you actually put your mind, you're renewed in the knowledge of him that created him. So the one that created that new man, Jesus, the one who created the new man, you have your mind renewed in him. What he's saying is park your mind there, have your affections, have, have the, the preoccupation of your life be on Jesus, verse number 11 he says there's not Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, or free. But Christ is all and in all. What he's saying is that for those that know Jesus, I mean, he, he's the ultimate trump card. He is so strong and so powerful that he breaks down all these walls of division that would normally separate us. He breaks down these, these socioeconomic walls. He breaks down these racial walls. He breaks down all of this, and he brings people together because he's, he's that strong and that big. When, when people just want to please Jesus, then it, it doesn't matter how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or, or, or isn't. It, it, none of that matters. What matters is Jesus. He is all in, in all. He's the center. He's the circumference. He is everything. So the fighting's done and the barriers are gone. You say, okay, great, pastor. I think I know I'm supposed to love God. You just said a lot about those verses. Fantastic. Let me, let me phrase it this way. If I was to take those pieces, 1, 2, 3, 4, those verses, uh, 7, 10, 11, and I was to take those phrases about Jesus and our ambitions and our affections and him being all and him changing us when he entered our life, if I was to take that and just sew them together and put it in halfway modern language, this is what it would sound like. Whenever I met you, everything changed, and it changed for the better. My life is wrapped up with you so much now that I'm not sure I could describe myself without you. You're part of who I am. I want whatever you want. Just say the word. I'm just happy to put my time and energy into what pleases you. You're what I think about all the time. You have my affections. You're my life. You are my all. Now, if you found a letter like that from me that wasn't addressed to anyone, it just said, those words, signed Mark, you would think it was a love letter. You would think that that was written to my wife, at least I hope you wouldn't insert someone else in there, you think it was to my wife, but that could be written to Jesus. What Paul is getting at through this text and what the Bible mentions over and over and over again in so many plain ways is that it's a love relationship. It's, it's time with him, communing with him, loving with him, heart fixed on him, affection set on him, that, that really what God wants at its core. There's a lot of things he wants. We'll walk through them the next you know, month and a half or so. But the first and foremost thing that he wants is people that love him. 
And Paul didn't say these words, but I think that it would be safe to say that Paul wanted more than a passport to heaven. Paul wanted more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. Paul wanted more than just to know where he would spend eternity. Paul wanted a satisfying, intimate relationship with Jesus. There's apparent yearning and passion and desire and fervor and longing here. And this isn't like a weird, isolated instance in Scripture. Like this is all over Scripture, that you'd find people like this, that you'd re- pick up the Psalms and you begin to read them and you would read things like, Oh God, Thou art my God and early will I seek Thee and my soul thirsts for Thee and my flesh longs for Thee in a dry and thirsty land. My soul followeth hard after Thee. That's not uncommon in the Bible to find people that desire with intensity and tenacity to pursue God and want more of Him. And this is why Jesus would say that the number one command is to love God with all you got. Love him with all you got. This is why Jesus was constantly course correcting the people who, quote, honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Because he didn't want lip service. He didn't want going through the motions. He didn't want just do my duty, show up, give some, do some, you know, the, the religious rigmarole. He wanted not heart far from me, but heart close to me. This is a normal occurrence in Scripture. I would argue this is a normal occurrence in, like, Christian history. That doesn't take you very long to pick up a missionary biography or to pick up the words of of, of a Christian author and to find them saying things like this. I'm going to paraphrase these for sake of time. But Spurgeon said, I can't do the Christian life without knowing Jesus. So it's essential. He says, I I need a relationship with Jesus, and my Christian life is going to go. It's not going to go without that. So it's essential. But even though it's essential, it is my greatest delight. Yeah, it's necessary, but not not in the sense that it's like drudgery, and I just, I have to do it so this will work. Yes, that's true, but this is my greatest delight. So Spurgeon said, therefore, I'm feasting. So I want more of this. I desire more of this. John Owen is a man that said very, very clearly that I just want to feast on Jesus till everything the world has to offer becomes unattractive. You can read that over and over, and and my basic question would be this. If this is normal, very normal in the New Testament, in Colossians, for Paul, for men in Scripture, if this is normal for Christians throughout history, why isn't it that normal for us? If this is, like, number one, why is this so uncommon? And I'm talking to me as much as you. I don't know what your relationship with Jesus looked like last week. But I know this. I know that typically... I don't see tons of yearning in American Christians. I just don't. It's not that I never see it. I've had some great conversations with you all about, hey, here's, here's how my relationship with Jesus is, and it's just great right now, and it's sweet, and I'm, I'm praying to know him more. Th- those conversations exist, but they're rare. They're the, ex- they're the exception, not the rule. And it should be the rule. It should be that we actually want to pursue and worship and love God. 
we are far too easily satisfied with where we are spiritually, and many times we just don't long. We just don't desire, or if we do desire, then we don't act on it. And my question would be, although I, I cannot, I'm not going to point the finger at any of you and say that you're not yearning and you're not longing and you don't really desire. I, I don't know. That's between you and God, honestly. That's, that's your heart to his. But I, I have to ask the question, is it there? Is, and not just because this is something we should do. Like this is the thing. Like the number one thing God wanted from his people, from his church, is this. This for me is my greatest prayer this year for our church family. I have goals and visions and ideas, and we've shared some of those, and I haven't shared some of those, and, and, and those are there. But number one, top of the list, would be just that we would love God and that we would know God more deeply and that we would worship him from the heart. And some of that's on you, okay? Some of that's on you. You're going to have to decide if you want to walk in the door and sing the songs just because it's the songs we're singing and go through the motions, or if you want to worship. If you want to just say the words and, and read the screen and that sort of stuff, maybe I'll keep my mask on so no one will see that my mouth isn't moving. If you want to do that, you can, or you can come in with an expectant heart and wanting to worship and wanting to say, look, here's going to be a 10-minute time frame, God, where I'm just going to devote myself to you and worship you, and I don't care what people are doing around me. I'm just going to put my mind and my heart on you and, and spend some time with you and tell you how good you are and how awesome you are and thank you and praise you. That's up to you. I can't make you do that. We're going to have communion in a little bit. It's very easy. Take my little cup, plastic off, eat that. That didn't taste like anything. Go through the motions if you want. Or you can stop and you can think about, you did this for me and you sacrificed for me and you gave yourself for me and, and you loved me and, and that's like awesome. And so I thank you and I praise you and I look at my life and I see, man, I, that that's off kilter and that shouldn't be and so God, I, I want to change that. Like, you get to decide if you do that. So some of it's on you, but some of it's on me. Like, I'm one of the pastors here. Some of it's on us corporately to make sure that this just isn't, like, a given and expected. You know, well, of course, yeah, like we love and worship God. Of course we do. But that we pursue it. And, and we're going to do our best. I don't know all the ways to, to work this out practically. I'll be honest. I haven't figured it all out. But we're going to try some things. We just here, not too long ago, switched our, our communion from Sunday nights. We had always done it on Sunday nights, once a month, and we switched it to Sunday mornings. And, and the primary reason was, that's supposed to be a, a really important time of worship for the church. And I want as many people as possible to, to be involved in that and, and to experience that and to go through it together. If something little we tweaked. This year, we will, at least monthly, at least once a month, have a prayer meeting for an hour or an hour and a half. We're going to do it on Sunday nights. We're going to do it on the third Sunday of every single month. So if you want to mark it on your calendar, mark it on your calendar. Can I be honest? Okay. I've been being honest, but I'll be more. I just said, hey, we'll do, you know, at least once a month, we're, we're going to do a, a prayer meeting together. Most pastors don't like to announce prayer meetings. I don't know if you knew that or not. You know why most pastors don't like to announce prayer meetings? Because they're unpopular. Can I tell you the truth? That's it. People don't want it. People don't want to come. 
have something that's fun and, and happy and, and, you know, is a party or there's songs or music. Oh, yeah, we'll show up. Have something that maybe you're going to teach me some Bible. So I'll show up. Have an opportunity for me to serve. I'll show up. But just, like, just spend time with God, like, just praying, like, eh, don't think so. No, I'm not going to, if you don't show up to prayer meeting on Sunday nights, I'm not going to judge you. I promise I won't, okay? You have lives. You may be working in the morning, getting up early. That may not work for you. You may have a family thing. You, may, you, you don't have to pray at that particular time in order to have a prayer life with God. I get it. But I also get that it's unpopular most of the time because we're, we're just probably not where we need to be when it comes to worshiping God. And loving God and wanting relationship with him and, and talking to him and praying to him and, and not just giving him our wish list, although there's a place for that of, hey, here's some needs I have and some requests I have, but just I adore you and I love you and I want to spend time with you and I want to praise you and I want to worship you. I want to be close to you. That, that's part of what Paul is getting at here. That yes, one day as Christians, eternity is secured. We're going to see him face to face. But before I see him face to face, I want to know him heart to heart. I want to have a relationship with him. So do you, are you yearning for that? Is that anywhere on your goals for this year to know Jesus better than you ever have? Is there any practicality to that? Any feet you're putting to that? And that can be worked out in a million ways, honestly. The, the, one of the simplest things to, to know is that knowing Jesus is going to involve prayer, for sure, and it's going to involve his word, for sure. But beyond that, there's a lot of ways just ask yourself, like, what ignites my heart for Jesus and what puts water on the fire? Those are two great questions, simple questions. What, what actually stirs my affections for him? Mine probably aren't yours. I won't give you my whole list, but, like, one of mine is missionary biographies. I don't read a ton of them, but when I, when I read a missionary biography, without fail, I, I'm inspired. My, my faith in the Lord grows. I want to commune with him more. I want to talk to him more. That helps me. You may hate reading. That may not be for you. What, what puts water on my fire may not be what it is for you. I had to learn years ago that I had to stop following my sports team so closely, to which my wife was forever grateful. But, but I had to learn, if a 20-year-old dribbling the basketball affects me emotionally, that's dumb. It is. It is just dumb. Why, why am I worked up? I'd, I'd be mad for a day, upset for a day because they lost the game or something. I just, had to, I just had to stop following it so closely. Now, to be clear, I'm still rooting for the Steelers to beat the Browns today. And this actually, our TV broadcast gets broadcast over Ohio line, so I'm sorry if someone watches this next week. But I'm, I'm rooting for that. I've, I'll follow it, but I'm not going like, to like put my affections there, you know. That, that, that was harmful and, and not sinful, but just detrimental to my relationship with Jesus. I don't know what it is for you, but ask yourself the question. What is it that will push me into relationship? Let's pursue that. What is it that, that draws me away from it? Let's get away from that. And be close worshipers. Love God with all we got. But it's not just that. There is a second concept, not just in the phraseology of close and clean worshipers, but also in Colossians chapter number 3, and that's the idea of being a clean worshiper. Not just close, but clean. Here in this passage, it's put as the mortification of the members. You could put it this way, kill sin. Just be killing sin. There's an old quote that says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's a good quote. I think I can upgrade it though. Be killing sin just because you love Jesus and that pleases him. 
That's the real motivation. Because I love him and I want what he wants, so Lord, whatever you say, then those are my marching orders. If you, if you try to kill sin without a relationship with Jesus that is, that is passionate, then it's just going to turn into this moralistic, keep the rules, rely on my own willpower sort of endeavor. And you don't want that. You want to love him and love him and love him. And as he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And some of those commandments are do this or don't do that. This is the idea of what Jesus prayed for in the garden right before he was crucified. He prayed for three things that were huge to him. He prayed for glory, that God would get glory from what he was doing. He prayed for unity of his people. But right in the middle of those two, he prayed for holy. He said, I want my people to be set apart. I want my people to be dedicated. I want them to be unique or holy. That's the idea that as I, as I kill off sin in my life, I will become uncommon to this world, that people will look at me and my priorities and my affections and what I do. And you spend all your time at that church or you, you give how much money away or you really think that Jesus is alive. They'll look at me and they'll think that I'm uncommon. Why? Because I'm set apart or I'm holy. Now, there's a lot of ways that that's worked out. I mean, you could scan the scriptures and see that has to do with marriage. That has to do with our attitude towards government leaders. That has to do with, with our sexuality. That has to do with our relationships. That has to do with our money. It has to do with a lot. In this particular text, and I want to read it just so we're clear, this has to do with sexuality and with relationships. He put it this way. He said, mortify, verse 5, therefore your members which are upon the earth. And here they are. Here's what you should put to death. Here's what you should mortify. Like, don't regulate it, exterminate it. Don't play with it, don't coddle it, don't take a half-hearted approach, don't be gentle. Take this, especially this stuff, sexual sin, and kill it. Fornication. That's a, that's a, a really generic word for just sexual sin. It's very broad. But he begins to press it down further. He says uncleanness. Impurity, okay, that which is dirty or gross. Almost every single one of us would be able to raise our hands and say, you know what, at some point in my life, I've done something sexually that was dirty or gross that I shouldn't have done. He says, in cleanness, inordinate affection, this is lust, this is passion in the wrong direction. Romans 1 tells us this is specifically where homosexuality comes from. It comes from a passion that is in the wrong direction. Evil concupiscence, that's not Cupid's evil cousin, okay? Evil concupiscence is evil desires and evil cravings covetousness, wanting what isn't yours. What he's saying is, I'm going to trace this down to the root. I'm going to say, you have sexual sin that's rooted in things that are impure, it's dirty, it's gross, it's it's a wrong affection, it's put in the wrong way, and and that's not good, it's an evil affection, but that's rooted in covetousness, that I want what I shouldn't have. God said, no, that's not for you. God said, don't do that. God said, don't do that until you're married. And so, God said, don't, but I want, so I'm coveting. I'm saying, no, I don't want your way, I want my way. I want what I, what I shouldn't have. I'm going to care for myself. And Paul shoots straight. He says, that's idolatry. He said, what you're doing is you're putting some object, some desire, some fling, some fantasy, some pornography, some infidelity in the place where God should be. This it shouldn't be. Don't give your allegiance to your own sinful desires. Give your allegiance to Jesus. Put your affections and your ambitions there. Now, to be clear, this isn't a passage against sexuality. God created sexuality. He gave it to us. This is a passage against sexual perversion. The Bible celebrates sexuality. It celebrates sexuality in in a heterosexual, monogamous uh, uh, marriage. For sure. But there are ways that are not God's ways that are dangerous. 
And Paul is saying, stay away from it. It's going to drain your spiritual energy. It's going to move your heart away from God. You don't want that. And then he talks about uh, this idea of uh, the wrath coming on the children of disobedience, verse number 6. I want to mention that just so you think I'm not trying to read a verse and move fast because this would be maybe, I mean, this whole passage would be uncom- or unpopular for most Americans, but especially verse number 6. Wrath coming on children of disobedience. I preached a half a sermon on this verse a couple years back. I'll send it to you if you want. But the short version is, if you don't know Jesus, don't think you're getting away with anything. You're not. You're storing up everything. It's not that God didn't notice. It's not that you got a hall pass. It's not that uh, there's never any punishment for that. It's that you're storing it up. But if you do know Jesus, on the contrary, it's really important for you to know what you're saved from so you can know what to be grateful for. That you're saved from the wrath. You're, you're saved from this. You're, you're saved from, from this judgment. So this is really good news if you know Jesus so that you don't have to, you know, go to bed tonight with a helmet on and one eye open and, and wonder what's going to happen to you. That you can have peace there. But he says that sexual stuff, it's, it's not for you. God doesn't like it. But put it away from you. That before you met Jesus, before you were adopted into his family, before you had a vision of, of who God wanted to be, Yes, you were part of the parade, the parade that's marched down through history that's filled with the drunken and confused and the naked and the celebrating. If we're filthy, let's be filthy together. He says, no, not, not you anymore. You met Jesus. He changed you, and he changed you for the better. Then he talks about our relationships. Verse 8, I'll go quick. He talks about to put off these, anger. Well, I'm just angry. No, stop. You're not going to be able to stop in your own power, but... Jesus wants to help you with that. Anger is this deep down smolder. It's this something burning that can be just fanned so quickly and turn into a flame, highly combustible, chip on your shoulder. Well, I just work better that way. I just, I, I play sports better that way when I'm angry. I, I get more done that way. No, anger shouldn't be there. Wrath, this is now the anger has erupted. The volcano has, has exploded and the fire has turned into a blaze. That turns into malice. Malice is ill will. I want to harm you. It's intentional. I'm going to take my burning, raging inferno, and I'm going to burn you. I'm going to take my words. I'm going to cut you. I'm going to hurt you. Blasphemy. This idea of slanderous or injurious speech towards God, yes, but also towards other humans. The idea of injuring someone with your tongue. This is what Buckwheat did in, in Little Rascals, if you remember that. Remember Alfalfa wrote that note to Darla? I think it was Buckwheat, if memory serves me right. And Buckwheat changed the notes. Now, Falfa didn't know it. So when Darla read it, it said, Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You are the scum between my toes. Love, Alfalfa. What is that? It's injurious speech. It's what's being referred to here as blasphemy. It's hurting someone with your words. Don't do that. Filthy communication out of your mouth. What is, what is just obscene or filthy, this could also be with your fingers, and not, and not in a gestured sort of way, although it could be, but in, in typing, like uh, on Facebook or texting somebody, stuff that's nasty. Lie not one to another. Tell the truth. Don't make stuff up. Don't rewrite history. Tell the truth. Doesn't this just describe our culture? The sexual parade that takes place, the, the attitudes people have. If you're at all on social media, you know this is true. Just put out any 
any issue that's controversial. Go make a post. Pick positive or negative. I don't care. Just put something about vaccines on Facebook today, okay? Fire up the carnival music. Get some popcorn and just sit back. Because that, that baby is going to be a show. It's going to be filled with people that are angry, people that, that, that anger turns into wrath even. It's going to be filled perhaps with criticizing people and you're so dumb and I can't believe you would and, and slandering each other. It's going to be filled with that stuff. And, and not just like unsaved people doing this, Christian people doing this. Paul says no. Here's, here's the point. Here's the point of this. Think about what you're doing, but also have your affections and your ambitions set on Jesus. And see if it doesn't come to your mind. Does Jesus want this? Is, is this fitting for the kingdom of God? Is, is this going to be in the kingdom? Am I going to live together with my fiance in the kingdom? No. So I probably shouldn't do it now. Am I going to watch pornography in the kingdom? No. So I probably shouldn't do it now. Like Jesus isn't going to say, hey, you know, welcome home. Bring that with you. It's not coming. So, so why have part of it now? Think about what you say, what you do now. Are you going to tell lies in the kingdom of heaven? No. So don't now. How many people are you going to gossip about in the kingdom of heaven? None. So don't do it now. That's what he's saying. This makes sense. I love Jesus. My affections on him. My ambitions are for him. So I want what he wants. I, I want him to be the king. I want him to rule. I want his word to have sway in my life. I want him to be in control. So because of that, I'm, I'm going to, okay, I'll do whatever you want, Jesus, because I love you. So let's go back where we started. You want to know what God wants for you? Those are not little words. You want to know what God wants for his church? You want to know what's number one on his list? What's mentioned most frequently, what has the greatest emphasis is to be a close and clean worshiper. There's other things he wants. There are. We'll talk about them. But none of them trump that. None of them trump that. To be a close and clean worshiper. We'll talk about reading scripture and having, you know, being doctrinally sound. We'll talk about it in a couple weeks. That's important. But it's not more important than this. Some of you come to church, you love, you love me explaining the Bible. But you've got to stop memorizing the menu and taste the food eventually. To love him and to worship him and to tell him how great he is and to want to spend time with him. That's most important. We're about to move into communion. And communion is supposed to spur us to this. It's supposed to cause us to examine ourselves and to look at our lives, to look at his ultimate sacrifice and his love and his display and what he did for us and to say, man, am, am I loving you like I should? Am, am, I, am I giving you your due? Am I living for you like I should? So, so in these moments that we're about to enjoy together, would you worship? Would you talk to him? Would your, would your heart be inclined to him? If, say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. There's all this junk in my life and I don't want to tell him that I love him and this, I can't because it's not honest. Well, then you can confess the sin right now and lay it down and kill it off and, and be close and be clean again. That can happen in an instant. Love him and pursue him. Be a close and clean worshiper. Pray with me for a minute. Father, we stop and we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. And Lord, we want to be what you would have us to be as people and as a church.
I would be the first to admit that I personally fall short of my own words on this, on this topic so many times. 